So, we have been parking in Philippians 4, 8. Uh, we've been going through the whole book since January, the whole letter of Philippians. It's a letter written by a, uh, a Jewish rabbi of sorts uh, who becomes a follower of Jesus, who then begins starting these church communities, these outposts of love and healing around the Roman Empire. And there's this one in Philippi, uh, which we've talked a lot about the context of this city and what's going on. Uh, and this place is an outpost of Rome, and Paul uses all this Roman language and turns it on its head and begins to use the language to talk about what Jesus is doing in the world, that this church is to be an outpost of the way of Jesus. And so we stopped in Philippians 4, 8 because Paul goes through this list of things that I think is so important for our church, um, in particular during this season. And we've sort of, in a silly way, called the, the, the series, Where's Your Head At? like the Aphex Twin song. Um, anybody, 90s dance music? Nothing? One of you. Nick Cole, could count on you, brother. Amen. Extra blessing, double portion. Um, <laughs> um, so where's your head at? So asking the question, right? I used the silly analogy last week of my daughter and how uh, her bowel movements have shifted from being yellow custard to strong sausages. I know, really great for church. Um, but what goes in comes out, right? Really simple. What you actually put into your head, whether you realize it or not, comes out. This is sort of the basic principle that Paul's tapping into. And so Paul doesn't begin listing off a bunch of things that they're getting wrong, right? Paul actually dives in and says, actually, let me show you the good and true and beautiful way of Jesus. This is what it looks like. These are the sorts of things you should commit yourself to. These are the sorts of things that you should have your head and your mind set on. These are the things that are true and lead to life. And so today, we are at the word lovely. Whatever is lovely. Say the word lovely. Lovely. It's a strange word to say. We don't use it all too often. Or some of us don't. Um, I want to unpack this word. I want to talk a little bit about why we struggle with what this word meant in Paul's context and why it's really difficult for us. And then I just want to humbly submit to you uh, that there is something captivating and powerful about following, uh, about entering into a, a life where loveliness is something that you're putting on your mind. Before I get to this, um, oh, there it is. Now you can hear me. Well done, Adam. Proverbs 4.23, be careful how you think. Your life is shaped by your thoughts, is one translation of Proverbs 4.23. I want to start by asking the question, does your life reflect the direction of your focus? Does your life reflect the direction of your focus, the things that you're focused on, in particular in this passage, the things that you set your mind on in general, the things that you regularly think about, not just when you're intentionally thinking about thinking. I mean, like, just what are the regular patterns and things that happen to enter into your brain on a regular basis? And can you see and identify the ways those things shift? Last week, we were talking about purity uh, and trying to kind of nuance, like, the, the really fuzzy area and, and the really black and white area that is purity, what it means to have a pure mind, and recognizing that there are some things that we just need to cut out because they're actually affecting in ways we don't realize. And it's really tough. 
It's sort of like you can trust the pastor who's saying, no, whatever you put in will somehow come out in some sort of way. But we don't see that with so much because we, we think that we're sort of immune to most things. Um, I, I wanted to mention one, one example that will help us sort of bridge the gap from last week's purity to this lovely. Um, a lot of people, when they, when they think about sort of overt, um, like sexual images or pornography or things like that, or, you know, we talked a little bit about the sort of stuff that we put into our brains that, that, that cause us to think, well, this is what a, a man or a woman is supposed to look like, and it starts to direct us, especially with men and when it comes to this sort of stuff. It's really funny, and these aren't like Christian studies, so let me just say that. This is like neutral source. Like the levels of anger that come out with folks that have serious porn issues, that like struggle with looking at this on a regular basis, it's off the charts. It's like nearly 100% in some, some studies. The fact of like a ramped up anger and a ramped up rage. It's a lot more specific than just that. But it's incredible the way that even something that seems totally disconnected the way in which we deal with control issues, psychologists, modern psychology talks about this so much, of the ways in which certain things get in our head and influence other parts of the way that we think. So when we come to this word, whatever is lovely, we have to start by asking uh, the question, like, what does that mean for Paul? When Paul uses the word lovely, it's not just like the, the shade of, co- like, the colors for our curtains on our new house that we're putting up. Like, those are lovely. Like, Paul actually has a little bit more depth when he uses this word. The only time this word is used in the New Testament is actually here in Philippians. And uh, Hosea prosphile is one way to, uh, is the Greek sort of English alliteration of the word. And what it gets at is uh, basically um, the person, like a relationship, and moving towards the relationship is sort of the actual root of the word originally. So moving in that direction. The word has the idea of that which is admirable or agreeable to hold on to or to consider. So pros is towards, and, uh, and the second word fills is friend. The word is that conduct which is pleasing in its motive and action towards others. So that which is pleasing in its motive and action towards others. A clear definition for me is this. I think it's on the screen. Winsome. That which calls forth love. That which promotes love. So lovely. Things that are lovely like promote love. Like immediately call something beautiful and true or something winsome out of you. So setting our minds on what is lovely is about setting your mind on the things that lead you into love, into relationship, into the good, into life. It causes you to think about the admirable. Does that make sense? It causes you to think, it, it like when you see it, something that's lovely, it, should, it, it kind of brings something out of you. you. When you meet somebody who's winsome, right, there's just something about their character that like, wow, you want to like follow them. There's something just good that emanates from them. It's not that they're like coercive. It's just the, the way in which they explain something maybe is compelling. So any action or thing that we set our mind onto that is lovely, that calls forth the good. Setting your mind on the things that lead us into love and into relationship and into the good. Now your mind can be set on vengeance and punishment your mind can be set on your own sense of justice and control. And if, if it's overly set on that, it will promote bitterness and fear in others. Your mind can be set on criticism and rebuke, uh, so much so that they promote resentment in other people. But the mind of the Christian, 
of the follower of Jesus should be set on the lovely things, kindness, sympathy, patience, the things that promote love and peace. And of course, the loveliest image of all in the picture we have is of Jesus. Now, with that definition in mind, I want to talk about what I, what I think is one of the greatest things that pushes us away from setting our minds on the lovely things of God, on the things that like pull out when you look at them, you're like, yes, that push us and promote love and peace and beauty. And, and this word is cynicism and everything that flows from it, a critical spirit, a way in which we sort of like, we shield ourselves I don't mean like you're cynical or critical every once in a while. I mean like a cynical and critical spirit that shields itself from the pain or beauty or whatever of the world and stands at a distance. I want to unpack this for a second. And the way I want to do this uh, is by uh, starting by showing you this video. This, uh, yeah. This is from The Onion. How many of you are familiar with The Onion? Phenomenal organization. I, satire, right? I, everyone's really clear that was a false news report, correct? Somebody's like, oh, yeah, totally knew that. Yeah, beards. I love that. I love the, like, the little subtle comments about gentrification, too. This invasive uh, people group. Um, next slide. The Onion is phenomenal. Uh, they re- did an article recently about uh, Christians, and it was great. So a lot of times, you know, Christians, especially evangelical Christians, get sort of branded in the media often as these sort of brainwashed idiots. Anybody who believes in God, even though 90% of the world believes in God, it's a side, says this, local church full of brainwashed idiots feeds town poor every week. It's such a great article. Just go through. It basically just like unpacks like, yeah, all these brainwashed hate mongers going and caring for the poor. Wonderful. Next slide. This one's one of my favorites. CIA realizes it's been using black highlighters all these years. Look at this. You see this? <laughs> you got to go. Yeah, it's so good. You got to go look it up after. According to the report sections of the documents, almost invariably the most crucial passages are marred by an indelible black ink that renders the lines impossible to read due to a top secret highlighting policy that began at the agency's inception. <laughs> oh. 
I mentioned the onion not because I'm trying to encourage you to not do, like, look at this. If anything, like, it's just, it's phenomenal. And satire and humor can be wonderful things that call out the truth. Let me be really clear of what I'm doing here. I use the onion as an example, though, because uh, think of, like, reading the onion, if you can, as, like, a lifestyle choice. Like, not just that you casually read it from time to time. Like, it shapes sort of the way in which you see the world. And so you all of a sudden can become insulated from something. Uh, One writer uh, says this, millennials, and that's a good chunk of you in the room are millennials, consistently list Stephen Colbert and Jon Stewart as their sources of news information. And the millennial generation has a good excuse to be cynical. We have been promised much by politicians, universities, and careers, yet all those things have left us strangely unfulfilled. Globalization has allowed us to become acutely aware of the grave sufferings of the world, but faced with our apparent inability to combat those evils, we distance ourselves from them through slacktivism, great word, sarcasm, cynicism, or black humor. This is an understandable but ultimately unfulfilling view of life. The writer's not bashing John Stewart or Stephen Colbert, anybody. He's simply saying the reason why so many folks in this generation, this writer's posture is, is because we just kind of have to insulate ourselves to turn an eye and just become kind of cynical and point because we are overwhelmed. Because we actually don't know how to engage. Or because, frankly, in my opinion, it's just easier. It's easier to be cynical, to be sarcastic, to have a critical viewpoint towards life than it is to be earnest, loving, And in this example, what we're going to get to is lovely. How did we get here? I think it's really important to take a look and zoom out at our cultural moment that we're in. Another writer says this, we crave nothing less, a guy named Ryan Reynolds, we crave, not the actor, we crave nothing less than perfect story. And while we chatter or listen all our lives in a din of craving, jokes, anecdotes, novels, dreams, films, plays, songs, half the words of our days, we are satisfied only by the one short tale we feel to be true. History is the will of a just God who knows us. He's talking about the Judeo-Christian story and the disconnect that we want to have this understanding of 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 a larger narrative and an art to the universe. And most of us live that way most of us, I mean, those who aren't Christians or, or aren't part of any kind of religious system, we live like that, but when we actually drill down, there's nothing substantiating that. It's actually sort of a nebulous sense. Our whole selves cry out for some sort of story of where this thing is going, and yet we find despair, and this triggers the cynicism and the critical nature that we so often embody. What do we do When we have no faith, so we think of faith, hope, and love, right, are things that mark the Christian communities in the first century and to this day. What happens when we don't have faith, for instance, we default to pragmatism. So when we don't have faith in anything, we kind of just default to what works in the moment, even though technically we all have faith in something. In the place of love, we try to insulate ourselves, and we actually shift and move towards um, a love of self, And the only love that we can kind of posture and control is, well, at least we love ourselves, right? We see this, um, and I've used this example before, and I always get into trouble, but I'm going to use it again because I think it's important. Uh, I I want you to know one thing. One, if you're here and you don't believe any of this stuff, like, it's okay. We love that you're here. Uh, The church should be marked by just an openness, calm, doubt, struggle. If you're in a place that I'm about to describe, like, 
that's okay. Like you are loved and we want you to be part of this community. Um, but I want to use this example because I think it, it really works well. Is when we talk about how a, a generation or a community has like given up on love, uh, I get asked often of why, why can't we just live together before we get married? Right? As if I'm like this like Puritan fundamentalist conservative that's just trying to like hold on to some weird ancient tradition. It has nothing to do with that. I, I just... I think that when you commit to somebody, you should truly covenant and commit all the way. And that will be the only thing, the only thing that gets you through the times that are hard. And so when we live together beforehand, that's totally fine. And it makes perfect sense if you're trying to mitigate disaster, right? It makes perfect sense if you're trying to make sure, well, I want to make sure like we brush our teeth at the same time and you don't fart too much in bed and like financially you're okay and we're not going to annoy the crap out of each other like after three weeks. Like I want to like, I want to make sure I'm not interested in diving all in like in love and actually committing to you regardless. I, I want to, I want to create a distance. We do this all the time. That's just one example where it's, it's, it's okay. It actually makes a lot of sense, but it's consumerism and not love. We have to be crystal clear on that. It is consumerism to the bone. And I only say that, again, not to pick on this one thing, but in general, I think we insulate ourselves from truly loving. We get a taste of it. We inoculate ourselves with like a hit of love or something that might slightly resemble love, and then we shift away. So again, I say, if you're here and you're living with someone, like, please understand, like, there is no judgment here, and we love you. Um, and if you want to go chat and have a, a beer with me, I'll, I'll talk to you about it. <laughs> what happens when we get rid of faith we default to pragmatism in the place of love we fall in love with ourselves and when we get rid of hope when we get rid of any sense of hope we resort to workaholism we try to create our own future and there's two great problems with this either you succeed and you create the future that you want your kids, your job, your, everything works out and then you realize like everyone in the world has already realized like every pop song and every millionaire who's ever made it that it will not satisfy you right, that like debate is over are we all clear on that? like you cannot create your own future in that way it will not satisfy your ultimate longing and or you won't make it and you'll get disillusioned that you didn't make it so in place of hope in place of like a, a hope for something more and beyond ourselves, we actually resort to something internal again. C.S. Lewis, the uh, Oxford atheist who became a Christian, says all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, is the long, terrible story of, of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. This leads us to a place of deep cynicism, and this is the postmodern condition. Suspicion of everything. Suspicion of everything. The only thing we can trust is our own small story, and we lose hope, and our hearts can't bear that. Our hearts cannot bear that loss of hope. There's one story that kind of gets at this, I think, in a, in a real powerful way. Again, as we juxtapose what is the very thing that pushes us away from that which is lovely, that which calls forth love. Uh, Douglas Copeland, who's a writer. Anyone know, re read um, Douglas Copeland's articles in the New York Times? He's an unbelievable writer. I highly recommend. He's the one who coined the phrase Generation X. Uh, he wrote the book Life After God, which if you have not read. Uh, and I've read this part of this story once before, I think a couple of years ago, but I want to read this again. So uh, in his book, Life After God, he's, uh, he's on a road trip and he says this. You with me? Doing all right? 
Sweet. We stayed at a motel and, uh, and cam loops that night, halfway to our ultimate destination. He says, I just couldn't make it any further. After we got settled into our hotel room, the big drama was that we forgot your Dr. Seuss book. He's talking about his child. We forgot your Dr. Seuss book back at the chicken shack in Merritt. You refused to settle down and go to sleep until I told you a story, and so I was forced to improvise in spite of my tiredness, something I am not good at doing. And so out of nowhere, I just said what came to my head, and I told you the story of doggles. Doggles, you asked? Yes, doggles, the dog who wore goggles. <laughs> Anyone who has kids know these are the sorts of stories you come up with. And then you asked, this is his little girl, then you asked, well, what did doggles do? And I couldn't think of anything else aside from the fact that he wore goggles. You persisted, so I said to you, well, Doggles was supposed to have had a starring role in the Cat in the Hat series of books, except, except what, you asked? Except he had a drinking problem, I replied. <laughs> Just like Grandpa, you said? Uh, pleased to be able to make a real-life connection, I suppose so, I said. So then you wanted to hear about another animal. And so I asked you if you'd ever heard of Squirrely the Squirrel. And you said you hadn't. Because I just made him up. So I said, well, Squirrely was going to have an exhibition of nut paintings at the Vancouver Art Gallery, except, except what, you asked? Except Mrs. Squirrely had baby squirrels, and so Squirrely had to get a job at the peanut, peanut butter factory and was never able to finish the work. Oh. I paused. You want to hear about any other animals? Uh, I guess so, he replied a bit ambiguously. Did you ever hear of Clappy the Kitten? No. Well, Clappy the Kitten was going to be a movie star one day, but then she rang up too many bills on her MasterCard and had to get a job as a teller at the Hong Kong Bank of Canada to pay them off. Before long, she was simply too old to try to become a star or her ambition disappeared or both. And she found it was easier to just talk about doing it instead of actually doing it. And, and what, you asked? Nothing, baby. <laughs> I said, stopping myself then and there, feeling suddenly more dreadful than you can imagine, having told you about these animals, filling your head with these stories, stories of these beautiful little creatures who were supposed to have been part of a fairy tale, but who got lost along the way. The writer goes on to describe, like, we have no great story, right? We have no great, I, I don't know what to do, to do, I've resolved the fact that there is no great thing that I'm a part of, or any story really just ends ultimately in despair. There is no God. There is no ultimate real hope in anything. And so these are the stories that he tells his, his, his child. Uh, Richard Dawkins, before I go back to Douglas Copen, Richard Dawkins says this, it kind of encapsulates this moment of Clappy the Squirrel, or Clappy the Kitten. Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, says, nature is not cruel, only pietously indifferent. This is one of the hardest lessons for the humans to learn. We cannot admit that things might be neither good nor evil, neither cruel nor kind, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. That is a worldview and one that you have to have a lot of faith to trust. So Douglas Copeland, after writing this, says, we are the first generation raised without God, we are creatures with strong religious impulses, yet we have nowhere to flow in this world of malice and TV, craft dinners and jets. How do we cope with loneliness, anxiety, the collapse of relationships? He goes on later and says, my secret, 
This is not somebody who's a Christian, if you haven't picked that. He's like just wrestling with what do I do and losing my sense of the greater story. He says, my secret is that I need God and I'm sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help give me. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem to be capable of giving. To help me be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness. To help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. I humbly submit to you that as a culture, we have moved to a place of cynicism and despair. As a culture that, that it's a culture where we tell stories uh, to our kids that are true, but filled with despair. Because we actually can't honestly say, yeah, yeah, there's hope. Because no, we're just neurons. We're the sum total of our parts and this thing isn't going anywhere. There has to be an alternative story. And as followers of Jesus, you might sit there and go, yeah, 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 I believe all this. I obviously believe there's a larger story. But what's interesting is that as followers of Jesus, we so often don't trust that. And we don't live into that and we don't live in light of it. And we actually become the same cynical, critical, shielded off people that don't set our minds on the things that are lovely and beautiful and, and, and things that move us towards an earnestness, things that are just admirable that push us forward. No, no, we want to continue to filter in cynicism, a slight despair masked as humor. This is not, again, I want to just reiterate again, my pitch to like stop looking at satire. This is a pitch to be aware of the sort of person you're becoming because there are things that you're putting on your head. There are things that I, I mean, I have spent most of my 20s as a just cynical person. And in, in allowing this text and others and the story of Jesus to take hold of me, I found myself shifting into wanting to believe more for people and being exhausted when I come across those who are chronically sarcastic. I just, I just want to be honest. If you think I've like started acting weird around you, it's probably because I'm just like exhausted at your sarcasm and cynicism. I just want to be real. Like, it's totally okay. Like, God loves you a lot. I, I, I love you. I don't have to like you and hang out with you. Like, it's exhausting. It's not a way to live. We are people that actually trust that Jesus is renewing all things. We trust and believe some out there stuff about what's happening, about what's being reclaimed and renewed, even in the face of our own brokenness and the brokenness of the world around us. We have hope of what God is doing. This is what drove Martin Luther King to do what he did Right? This is what has driven so many of the most powerful, beautiful men of God. I just was reading a sermon that Nelson Mandela gave recently. And he just talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And how it's like in light of apartheid and all of this brokenness in South Africa, I trust a bigger story. And it allows me to not become cynical and jaded. If Nelson Mandela didn't become cynical and jaded, you, none of you in this room should ever come close to it. He had every reason, every reason, times 10 to. Because this is what happens when we begin to put that which is lovely on our minds, that which brings forth, that promotes love, the sorts of things that promote peace, that promote the way of Jesus. Uh, Paul is a great story. I'm going to skip it for the sake of time today. But in Acts 17, Paul's talking to the church in Thessalonica. Just read the story. And he's talking to this culture that is just embedded in this critical, cynical spirit. And he just launches in and ends up creating this sort of riot of, of sorts because he, he begins to just announce the good news of Jesus. He tells the story. 
He talks about this God who suffers for us, who comes and who has forgiven us and set us free, right? A God unlike every other God in every other religious system because this is a God that you don't have to do anything to earn your way. This is a God who enters into the human story, enters into our own brokenness and the despair of the world and says, I love you right where you're at. This is what sets the story of Jesus apart. And in Acts 17, it's just so powerfully revealed. He actually creates this stir because people begin to tap in to a more beautiful story. What we end up realizing, again, what I have ended, I won't put this on you. What I have begun to realize is that I do not have the resources within myself to save myself. It's funny, the more and more I become a Christian, the more and more I feel like alive and free in so many ways. I realize I do not have the resources in myself that when things break, because they will, and when other people do things, when I look at the political landscape, when I look at the religious landscape, when I look at the pain in the world, I go, man, there's got to be something else outside of me. And then I look back in history, and I look back at the stories and the scriptures, and I look back at, at the Christian story, even when the Christian story has gotten so off track from what it was supposed to be, you see God bringing it back to the center. Cynicism prohibits us from seeing the world the way God sees it. It ignores the good news, this ultimate story of faith and hope and love. The way of Jesus is to be believed. If it's to be believed, then the central fact of history is that Jesus is renewing all things. And if this is all true, then we as followers of Jesus must move towards the re-enchantment of the ordinary. The re-enchantment, as a Marilyn Robinson quote, the re-enchantment of the ordinary. The ability for us to train ourselves to be able to see the work that God is, is doing and what's going on routinely all the time right under our nose. If we are people that are aware and awake to the beauty, to the hum of resurrection in our lives, how could we think of anything other than that which is truly lovely? So here's my deal, if I haven't already explained it. Cynicism completely stunts this recognition by inclining us towards flippancy and fatalism. Cynicism, like these, it's just not attractive options for us as followers of Jesus or viable ones. And instead of succumbing to the numbing way of cynicism, which rips our passion away from us, which waters down our sincerity and our earnestness, the, the Christian's posture towards the world should be one of earnestly and prayerfully desiring to see the advance of truth, goodness, and beauty in the world that God loves so dearly. Can I say that again? Can I say that again? Yeah. The Christian's posture towards the world should be one of earnestly and prayerfully desiring to see the advance of truth, goodness, and the beauty of creation that God loves so dearly. When Paul reminds the church at Philippi, when Paul reminds us in our passage today, whatever is lovely, think about such things. Whatever is lovely, think about such things. He is reminding us to set our minds on the way of Jesus, which disrupts cynicism and it disrupts the despair in our culture. How do we do this? Romans 12, 2. It says, don't copy the behavior of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. 
then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. We have to train our mind. The cynic or the constantly sarcastic individual who's always shielding themselves from the pain of the world has to stop, has to stop before they can become truly aware of the beauty of what God is doing all around them. We can't just pretend that we will naturally think about lovely things. You cannot do the same thing over and over and expect different results. This is literally the definition of insanity. Literally the definition of insanity. All right, we can't keep doing the same thing and expect that we will naturally drift into thinking about that which is lovely. The old you needs to be replaced with the new one. Right? When you make big sacrifices, there's big payoff. Whether it was the purity message I gave, whether it was the honorable one, whether it was just you reading the text this week, are there any of you who just need to like cut the crap and just there's stuff you gotta cut out and just do it? Because it's not leading you into a way of life and it's exhausting and it's ripping you of your joy and the beauty that we have in Jesus. Like, you know me, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't get all like screamy at you very often. And I think I don't do that because I get scared because I know I need to do that to myself so often. And so I f- I'm assuming that most of you have that same voice, the same spirit of God in you just going like, stop looking at that. Stop, like, allowing that to be your predominant worldview. Cut those things out because it's killing you. Like, you're, you're exhausting yourself and your spouse and everyone around you because you're critical all the time, because you bought into this lifestyle and worldview of despair, and God wants you to be focused on that, which is beautiful and lovely and calls forth the most incredible things in this world. All your thoughts need to be taken captive, Paul says, all of the time. If it's not from God, if it's not lovely, get it out. Be awake. Be awake. Pour yourself into Jesus. Wherever your mind goes, your whole life will go. So guard your steps. Guard your steps. If your mind is consumed with God, it's hard to get God out. It's hard to get you out of the will of God. Don't just go through the motions. Ask God, ask God this morning to sharpen your mind to the things that are lovely. You don't want the challenge, this mountain that's in front of you to dictate your steps. You don't want the thing that is broken to dictate your steps. Think about God rather than thinking about that relationship or that habit or that mindset that doesn't bring forth love. The thing that isn't lovely, just cut it out. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, we're told we have like the strength of God in us. Access it. Access it. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, like you'll be amazed when you look through the scriptures of how many people begin to live the way of Jesus and find themselves transformed. They begin to live the way of like putting their mind on lovely things and they find themselves shaped in a whole new way. Think about God rather than thinking about that relationship or that habit or that mindset.
that thing that doesn't bring forth love, that isn't lovely. Because honestly, if it's not lovely, if it doesn't promote peace and if it doesn't promote love, it's likely on sale, is it not? And like most things that are on sale, they are on sale for a reason. I do not want the leftovers of this world. I don't want something half-priced. I don't want the hand-me-down or the thing that's secondhand. I don't want to, I don't want the deal that looks too good to be true, right? Because that deal is deceptive. The sale item, the thing that is not lovely looks good from a distance. They may even last for a little while. <laughs> but like your fake handbag, don't be disappointed when it breaks in the rain. I'm not telling anybody anything new that there's so much counterfeit junk that we, that we adopt or that we act like doesn't phase us or affect us. I don't want the thing that will get me through a moment, but it won't be there when I need it the most. Just to say, like, I'm not gonna affect that. I'm not gonna accept that which is counterfeit this year. Like from this point on, there's a lot of counterfeit crap in my head that is leading me away from the things that are good, true, and beautiful, and I'm not going to deal with it anymore. Proverbs 4, where we started, be careful what you think. Your life is shaped by your thoughts. Paul tells us whatever is true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. I know that my life reflects the direction of my focus. So where is my focus? There are those in this room whose minds are so set on cynicism and a critical spirit that they actually promote that in others. You're actually like preaching cynicism and despair. You're actually preaching a loss of hope. Stop. Set your mind on that which is admirable and winsome that screams life and the life of the ages. For some of you, the, the call today is actually stepping back into a relationship with Jesus that you have not had, that there has been distance from, that there has been friction. I don't believe any of this stuff <laughs> like based on some outside uh, evaluation of it. This answers the existential crisis that I find in my heart. And as I look back through history, these texts and the way of Jesus answers the most primal longings of who I am as a person. Man, I want to be a church that is not known for its critical spirit or cynicism, but the things that bring forth the way of Jesus, that call out to us the way of God. So we're going to I stole that last uh, thing about it being for sale. Like, I love that. Like the stuff that is just, I just 
just don't want this, this, the thing that's for sale anymore and the counterfeit thing. So uh, today, uh, we're going to take communion. Um, I think we're still going to do that. We should still do that. Sounds good. And I want, uh, sometimes when we get up in line, it's really easy to just sort of like be focused in on like, I'm going to take communion and I don't know, the girl next to me looks really cute or something, or you're really distracted, or you're half in a fight, or you just woke up from the sermon or something like that. I would encourage as far as you are able that as you walk, um, to be reflecting on this, on that thing, on those things which do not promote love. Some of you, like, just be okay with, like, raising your hand as I pray and saying, like, I am a cynical bastard and I'm going to stop. I am, I am like, I'm just so tired of the things that I put in my head and I want to zero in and focus on that which promotes the love of Jesus. And so this is perfect as we come to communion, right? Because if, um, if you're new to all this, we come to the table where Jesus gathered with his disciples, right? The rabbi gathered with his disciples and he said, this is, this is my, my, my body broken for you. This is the blood, the new covenant. And he says, take these things as you remember what I have done and am going to do for you. Remember the ultimate picture of love that I am going to show, the forgiveness and redemption and renewal that is going to happen on the cross that you can step into this way of life, a life where your identity is shaped around that which is actually true and begin to live more free and earnestly and wide open to the majesty and wonder of the world because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we have done. Pray with me. God, I pray that this day um, is one where, where some of my friends here in the room like, I'm just, I'm thinking of stuff on my own head. I can't even focus. Like just stuff that I, I need to cut out. Lord, those um, people who you've put something on their head right now that is counterfeit and just full of junk, Lord, I, I just ask, Lord, that there would be a commitment here in this moment that in your strength, they would begin to focus in on that which is lovely. Not just worry about rooting it out, but actually turn their direction towards that which is good and beautiful, that which is admirable, that which promotes peace. Lord, I think of those who are, are just brand new or who are doubting or have questions. Lord, I pray, Lord, that just this time as we, as we take communion or as some of us just sit back in the pew, uh, this would be a time where we could just honestly just say, okay, I, I want to know the truth. I want to know what is truly beautiful and truly lovely. I pray for those who are, who are actually willing and ready and want to just say, I want to begin to follow this, this, this rabbi. I actually want to begin to follow this person, Jesus. That, that in this moment, they would, begin, they would make that commitment to you. And that for all of us, as we come to the communion table, that we would just be just overwhelmed, God, by your presence and your love today. So in your name we pray.